Now, this evening, we return to verse 2, which we were unable to finish last time. I've placed the entire outline for verse 2 from last week on the front page of the outline for this week. But we will begin with the symmetry slash parallels section, which is about a third of the way down on that front page. Verse 2, and from the outline, symmetry slash parallels. You all with me? All right, now the point here is to note that verse 2 has symmetrical parallels with other places in this letter. And if you'll notice verse 21, and actually 21 through 23, you'll see a word in verse 2 which reappears there in verse 21. As you compare passages, what word do you see that is symmetrically duplicated? The word mercy. And the verb form reappears in verses 22 and 23, so that uh, mercy is present at the opening benediction, and it is present at the end of the letter, as we will notice once again with another word in verse 2, which is also parallel with a second word in verse 21. You found mercy in 2 and 21. What else do you find in 2 and 21? Marge? Yes, love. All right, so what we are noticing is that Jude begins and ends his epistle with similar or symmetrical vocabulary. And he does so with respect to this term mercy and the term love, as in the beginning, so at the end. Now, why is it that he does this? Well, you'll notice that these are the two sections of this letter which are directed to the believing Christian community. That is, to his audience who is reading this letter or hearing it read to them. And you'll recall from the structural outline that we placed in the handout for number three of our study, we found a bracket paradigm. That is, the beginning of this letter and the end of this letter bracket the believing community in antithesis or sandwiching the unbelieving community, which is in the middle, verses 4 to 16. So that's one of the reasons we have this symmetrical duplication here. At the beginning, in verse 2, mercy. At the end, in verse 21, 22, and 23, the word mercy. At the beginning, in verse 2, the word love. At the end, in verse 21, the word love. And those beginning and ending sections, 1 to 3, bracketed with 20 to 25, are the uh, framework of the believing uh, Christians around the unbelieving intruders who have worked their way into this community. So that's one of the reasons for the symmetrical parallelism. The other reason is he wants to end on the note of affirmation with which he began. 
In other words, he goes back to the beginning to reflect on vocabulary he used at the outset, particularly in this benediction, and he wants to confirm it. He wants to reinforce it. He wants to leave them with the same way he began. Now, you'll notice that in verse 2, in this benediction that he pronounces on them from the outset of the epistle, one word is sandwiched. What word is that? It's the word peace. It's right in the middle between mercy and love. Now, we ask ourselves why he has done this. Is this just accidental or is there some explanation for why he arranged the terms mercy, peace, and love? What do you think? Art, your head went up. You had that pensive look about you. That's a good thought, but I don't think that's what he's doing. Okay? It's not unrelated as a theological idea, but why would he put peace in the middle? Well, Christ, is, Christ is a peacemaker. Christ is peacemaker. I think it's more local than that. I don't mean that Christ isn't local, but <clears throat> what's going Scott? All the in the community. Exactly. The turmoil in this community. Now, we haven't really dug into that yet. We're going to. But we know that there are intruders that have stirred up controversy inside this group, inside this believing community. <clears throat> so he puts peace in the middle to sandwich that because he wants them to focus on the peaceful harmony, which he hopes will come out not only as benediction, but also out of this letter. <clears throat> that peace would t- calm and tame the strife that has erupted within this Christian community. Now, last week, <clears throat> we talked about whether or not it's just love which is multiplied or increased or made to abound, <clears throat> and we noted that no, that adjective, abound <clears throat> or be multiplied, applies to all three, mercy, love, peace, and love. It's something <clears throat> which is amplified for all three of them. So I'm not going to go over that again unless you have a particular question about it. And we'll move on to <clears throat> why mercy. Why does he pronounce a benediction of mercy upon them? And the suggestion of answer is in verses 22 to 23. So if you'll turn to those two verses, and Kay, if you have them, would you read them out for us, please? Verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Go ahead. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, aiding even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, why does he talk about mercy at the end in those two verses. And what's the point of talking about mercy there? He wants this community to... Uh, It seems to me that uh, those are the three types of persons that you're going to run across in your daily life. 
and this is how you deal with each of those types. You show what? Show mercy. You show those mercy to who them. have uh, genuine doubt. Um, those that you can save from snatch the from fire, do it. And for the others, uh, show mercy mixed with fear. Right? Yes. Okay. So the point is, he begins with the benediction of mercy because he wants them to show mercy, which he underscores at the end. If you do not have the mercy of Christ, how can you share the mercy of Christ? How can you bestow it? How can you pass it on? That's what he's trying to do here with uh, underscoring the quality of mercy in his benediction at the end. All right. With respect to peace. Why is he emphasizing this matter of peace? We've already alluded to it somewhat. But in verse 19, you will notice that he underscores the division that has occurred, the disturbing the peace, if we may say it that way, of the community. So he pronounces peace in order to encourage them to uh, bring the peace to a disturbed community. And finally, the word love and the parallel with that in verse 12. Now, in verse 12, he mentions these love feasts. But in the love feast, the agape feast, as it's called in the early church, the expression of the love of, of the community was intended to be displayed. But those who have intruded themselves into this community are using the love feasts for what purpose? Serving themselves. For themselves. For caring for themselves. In other words, their apparent love is only selfish self-interest. And they abuse the love feasts in order to promote themselves. Consequently, this emphasis upon love at the outset, is a love which is selfless, not selfish. All right, now, with these three terms, mercy, peace, and love, we're reminded of the attributes of God. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What did I just recite? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number six. All right, now, that question, as well as the confession, which we honor, describes the attributes of God by listing them. And we, uh, we categorize them in terms of communicable and incommunicable attributes. And Nancy, I'm going to ask you, what are the communicable and incommunicable attributes? Did you know I was going to ask you that? I'm not going to quite call you a prophetess, but at any rate. Oh, I'm under pressure. You're under pressure. Relax. Okay, communicable. 
That is where. Um, what does God do with the communicable attributes? He shows. Uh, he shows us through His creation who He is. Okay. And what is one of the communicable attributes that he shows? Um, how about mercy? mercy? Oh, mercy. How about mercy? mercy? All right, well, how about an incommunicable attribute? I still have you on the hunt seat. Um, well, that's where he shows his. Wrath. What's that? His wrath. His wrath. Well, we might say the, the fullest extent of his wrath. But how about being infinite? And what was our fancy word for being infinite? Um, ubiquitous. Ubiquitous, yes. Okay, and a synonym for ubiquitous was if he's infinite, where is he? He's everywhere. Everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is omnipresent. There we are. Alright, so we get one of those omni words. That's an incommunicable attribute. Incommunicable because he does not communicate it to the creature. He alone is omnipresent. Alright, there's one omni word. What's another omni word? Omniscient. Omniscient. Good, Nancy. What's omniscient mean? All-knowing. He knows all things. Do you know all things? Do I know all things? No. All right. So he does not communicate his all-knowing wisdom to the creature. And what's the last omni-word? Come on, all you Messiah fans. Omnipotent. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. All right. And that means what, Marge? He is all-powerful. He is almighty. Well, those are three of the easy, incommunicable attributes of God. <clears throat> so we get a, 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 a sense of what God passes on by way of reflection of his image in the creature <clears throat> and what he does not pass on. That is, he retains for himself alone in his triune being. Now, the last one I would note here of the incommunicable is the fact that he's immutable. Immutable. Nancy, what does immutable mean? He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, now that leaves mercy, peace, and love, which would be part of the communicable attributes of God. That is, in measure, we reflect those because he's communicated them to us, or he's made us capable of expressing them. So let's take a look at them in detail. What is God's mercy? What's that attribute mean? You say God is merciful. What does it mean? That means he does according to his good pleasure. That would be his sovereignty, not his mercy. I think it means not giving us what we deserve. That would be his... Merit. Undeserved merit. That is what? Grace. Grace, Grace, not mercy. Oh, okay. So mercy and grace are not the same. They are favors. Okay? So what's the difference between grace and mercy? Marge, you want to... You're talking to yourself. No, I was just saying what Kay said was mercy. I was right. 
that he, he does not give us what we deserve. No, that's grace. I thought grace was giving us what we do not deserve. So mercy is giving us, oh, oh I, thought, I thought I heard say not deserve. You were saying giving you what you do deserve? Mercy would be what you... Mercy would be not giving us what we do deserve. Not giving us what we do deserve would still be grace. What's mercy? Forgiving us for what we do. Forgiving us for... That would be forgiveness. Mercy is God's pity for our misery, for our wretched, sinful misery. Mercy to the wretched, mercy to the pitiful. That is God's kindness to those who are in the state of the miserable bondage of sin. Because sin is miserable bondage. Just ask a drunkard. Just ask a person who is sexually licentious. Just ask a person who's been through multiple marriages. Just ask the Hollywood icons whether they are miserable or not. In reality, most of them are extremely miserable in their wretchedness. And those of us who have experienced the dregs of sin realize that we're not very happy when we're in that condition. And particularly if it's because of our own sinful disobedience. So the miserable state of sinful existence, that is dwelling in sin, remaining in sin, abiding in sin, it makes you miserable, makes you wretched, it makes you very unhappy. You need the mercy of God. And praise God, his mercy is adequate to relieve you of your misery and your wretchedness. So that's the, new, that's the difference between mercy and grace. <clears throat> grace is an undeserved favor. Mercy is a favor for the wretched, for the miserable. All right, what about peace? What is this attribute of peace? <clears throat> we say God is a God of peace. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, Christ is our peace. Why does Paul make a point of underscoring that? Are we at war? We are. Are we not? Paul says in Romans 8 that we are at enmity with God. In other words, we are fighting a battle against him. We don't want to believe in him. If we don't believe in him, we don't want to submit to him. We don't want to obey him. We want to resist him. We are at war, struggling to fight him off. And sooner or later, he will abandon us if he doesn't pursue us with his electing grace. Sooner or later, he'll simply let us go. Romans 1. All right, so... Peace is God's signing the peace treaty with warring sinners. Peace is God being reconciled to those who are enmity with him. This peace, of course, comes by Christ, who is our peace, as Paul says, Ephesians 2.14, once again. And it results in the blessed communion with God, which is the peace which passes all understanding, excuse me. The peace of God 
a precious, precious gift and possession. Not being at odds with yourself, not being at odds with your maker, not being at odds with your redeemer, not being at odds with your family, not being at odds with your neighbors, not being at odds with your community, not being hard to get along with and at war with everybody around you. The peace of God, peace that he has sealed to you in the blood of the peace treaty, the cross of Jesus Christ. There is the testimony to the peace of God and the spirit of God brings that peace to the heart of the believer. Did you have your hand up? Could peace be rest? Perfect rest? Perfect rest is an expression of peace, yes, okay? But the peace itself is the contentment, knowing that the the warfare is over. The enmity has been solved in Christ, not in me, in Christ, for me, by Christ. So I rest in Christ and therefore are at peace with God. Now, finally, love. Which seems self-explanatory, but let's expand upon it for a moment. It is the attribute of God's affection. In fact, it is his precious affection. I like to say it's God's passion. It's his passion for, first of all, his son. Jesus Christ is the primary object of the love of God because he is the best beloved of the Father from all eternity then how, if we are loved of Christ, how are we then loved of God the Father? He could no more unlove us than he could unlove his Son. Having loved us in his Son, he loves his Son in us. And therefore, this passion which he has for his Son is extended to the passion he has for those who are in Christ, united to him, By grace through faith, recipients of the mercy and peace of God in Christ, by the power of the indwelling of the Spirit, this passion of God is a passion for us who are saved, us who believe. He delights in us. We are the apple of his eye. Because his son is his delight. His everlasting delight. His son is the apple of his eye. He's the one who is altogether lovely and beautiful. And so he cannot look upon those whom he has redeemed in his son any less than he can look upon his son. With nothing but love for them. And so, in the beloved of the father, Christ Jesus the son. By the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who breathes out that love and binds us to that love by the work of regeneration and faith, we are the loved of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. There is a place to cast your anchor. There is a place to lay hold 
for your life. There is a place to find a position of rest and eternal peace. Now, it's that eschatological vector which I note here. Mercy to you now. And at the end of this epistle, he will talk about that which endures forever and ever. Peace to you now. And at the end of this epistle, that which applies to you forever and ever. Love to you now. And that which at the end of this epistle applies to you forever and ever. In other words, this benediction is a benediction which is bestowed upon the community now and is extended into the eschatological future. It is an eternal mercy, an eternal love, an eternal peace, which is wished and blessed and bestowed upon this community through the uh, through the epistle of Jude, through the author himself. What happier benediction could you wish for those who are part of the Christian community than that they have now and into eternity mercy, peace, and love from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Any questions about verse 2? All right, we move on to verse 3. And as we scan that third verse, we notice that there is a word which is repeated twice in that verse. So as you skim that verse, can you pick out the word that is duplicated? It is the word right. W-R-I-T-E. All right, now, that raises the question of why he mentions it twice. So as you read the verse, why do you think he mentions the word right twice? He's being diligent. He's being diligent, Robert. Well, possibly he had um, two written documents in mind, and uh, uh, circumstances made everything converge into one. Uh, I'm not explaining this right. Uh, you, you, you're on the right track, but you're not quite there. <laughs> He was going to write to them uh, about their salvation. Very good. All right. So he was intending to write one letter, right? Yeah. About what topic? Salvation. About their common salvation. Let's keep that in mind, okay? All right. So he was intending to do that, okay? What happened? But then these controversies came up in the church, and he had to write about that, and he just combined the two. Did he combine the two, or did he put the other first letter on the table, put it on hold? Yeah, okay. Is that a possibility? Yeah. All right, so the controversy that erupts in his community causes him to put off the occasion of the first letter he intended to write. 
He wanted to write a letter about their common salvation. Now, that would be a letter of commendation, drawing them together around the common theme of their joint redemption. Okay, Is that the tone of this letter? If you read through it, you know that's not the tone of this letter. Okay, This letter is specifically directed to the kerfluffle of controversy that has arisen within this community. Well then, the first letter was put on hold. He sits down then to write the second letter out of the urgency of the situation. It's okay what happened to the first letter. Well, you must have had a file somewhere. Is your name Kay? No. I was looking at Kay. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. He either did write it or it... (laughs) It wasn't saved. It wasn't saved. I like that. <laughs> it wasn't saved. All right. He, he didn't. He didn't uh, push Control S or whatever. <laughs> All right. Um, we don't know what happened to that first letter, but it's interesting to think about the story that's behind this verse because you have a little story here, don't you? Here is Jude intending to write a letter about. The salvation he's experienced, the salvation this community has experienced, the salvation the Christian world has experienced. And he's got this letter in mind. He intends to put his pen to paper or pen to papyrus and to dash it off when all of a sudden he's informed of the controversy within the community that he's going to write to. So he sets aside that idea or whatever rough draft he may have had. And he goes to his papyrus and he writes this letter, which is preserved. And his case said, the first letter is not saved. It's kind of like the lost letter of the Apostle Paul. What letter is that? Not the Corinthians. It's his letter to the Laodiceans, possibly lost. Well, lost, but uh, um, no, I, I, I retract that. Definitely lost. Okay, all right. I don't think it'll ever be found. Um, <clears throat> now, it is somewhat speculative for us to suggest that maybe he put this off on a on another table, or he never got back to it. But at any rate. The point of this exercise is to realize there's a narrative story behind this epistle, and it was not the epistle he intended to write originally. This epistle is an answer to a crisis. The first epistle was not an answer to any particular crisis. It was a letter of encouragement, commendation, uh, joint fellowship and communion. But he suspends it. Because of the urgency of the moment. It's critical. It's critical that he send a letter quickly to this community in order to stir them for a particular focus. All right. Now, we'll find out about that focus in a moment. But you'll notice how he opens this verse in verse three. Beloved plus you. He uses the construction Beloved plus you. He's also going to use that construction in verse 17 and in verse 20. Beloved 
plus you. All right, now, there's a contrast between the way he addresses this believing group, beloved, verse 3, 17, and 20, and how he addresses, and the pronoun that he uses, you, he will also use the possessive our, or us. There's a contrast with how he addresses others. Notice verse 4. How does he address others in verse 4? Not beloved, but certain persons. And what pronoun does he use there? Those. And he will use these, those, and them for the others in this other group. All right, so... At the outset, we learn about his vocabulary when he's addressing the parties within this community. Beloved and you or our certain persons, these and those who are not beloved and not of our fellowship. That is ultimate spiritual fellowship. They are within the fellowship of this community but they are not within the fellowship of the grace of God. All right, so we have two different groups. We have the you group, and we have the those group. We have the us and them group. Yes, there is this distinction. There is this difference. There is this clear disagreement. We can't sab it over by saying that, well... Those heretics are really part of us, or can we? In other words, if we do not recognize that there are divisions here within this community, divisions over truth and error, then are we going to recognize divisions within our own communities, our own Christian communities? Now, I'm not suggesting that we're interested in fomenting divisions, but are we also going to sleep when divisions are there and we ought to recognize them? Jude was not going to sleep when these divisions started to stir this community. He was going to say that those certain persons are not part of our or your beloved fellowship. He's going to make that discrimination and that distinction. And he's going to do it for the sake of defending the truth. In fact, he's going to call them to defend that truth. He's going to lay the responsibility of their being aware, educated, and informed enough to know what certain persons are doing in sowing division and controversy within the body. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be calling alarm when there is error abroad in the body and when there is immorality abroad in the body and when discipline ought to be applied to the body. It's not a bad thing to do that. You're not being a bad guy to do that. If so, Jude is a bad guy. And that's exactly what the liberal commentators say about this epistle. They don't want this epistle applied to the modern church because it's too harsh. It's too tough. It's nasty. It's actually calling people names. It's calling them certain persons. We don't do that. We don't say that about people. We don't say certain persons. 
We're all one big happy family in this global village, right? Well, you see, ultimately, the hypocrisy of that and the fact that it's only a one-way street because other than the liberals that ever talk about tolerance, you see, they're tolerant about everything for themselves but not for anybody else. But here, with respect to the believing community, we're not talking once again. I emphasize we're not talking about fomenting tension within a peaceable Christian community. But what we are talking about is being able to recognize when tension is brought into it. And if we close our eyes to it, if we ignore it, if we refuse to be instructed about it and educated about what it's there, why it's there, and where it's come from, and what it's going to lead to, then the responsibility for that error overtaking the church is going to hang in part upon our heads. We are called to be vigilant, even as we are called to be lovers of peace and purity. All right, so this epistle, with its jarring vocabulary, is a vocabulary which arises out of a struggle between truth and error, between orthodoxy and heresy. That's what's going on in this community. Therefore, when he instructs us in this third verse to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered, he is laying down a fundamental principle for the orthodox believing Christian community in 2013. You cannot walk away from this exhortation without walking away from the revealed, inspired, and infallible word of God. And if you're going to sit on your hands when error creeps into the church, then you're not listening to what Jude is telling you. You're not listening to what God is telling you. You're not listening to what the inspired scripture is telling you. You're winking. You're winking and indulging error and rude behavior and bad discipline, etc., etc., etc. All right, now, I've obviously focused upon the fact that this contention which he's calling for is an immediately urgent matter with respect to that community 2,000 years ago, and it remains an immediately urgent matter for the community of believers today. We must be vigilant at all times. Now, uh, going back to uh, what's below beloved you plus you, this is not the first time, excuse me, that he's talked about the word beloved. You'll notice in verse 1 that he used that very same word to indicate that those who are beloved of God the Father, in God the Father, are part of this community. And then in verse 2, he said that love be multiplied or love abound to them. Notice the mirror then. <clears throat> The reflection of loved by God in verse 1, loved by Jude in verse 3. Those who are loved in God the Father are loved by Jude. Who was outside the circle of the love of Christ at one time. In Mark 3, verses 31 to 35, Jesus is inside a house. 
And outside are his brothers, including Jude, who have come to take him away because they think he is mad or beside himself. And Jesus is asked, who are my mother and brother? And he says, those who do the will of my father in heaven, those are the beloved of my father. They are the beloved circle of God. Jude would eventually be brought into that circle. He would be loved of his brother, the Lord Jesus. He would be loved of God the Father in and through his brother, the Lord Jesus. He would come into the circle of the love of God in Christ. But he wasn't originally in that circle. He was outside it. In fact, he was outside that circle thinking that he was right and his brother was mad. It is not the first time in the history of the Christian faith that those who have been on the inside have been regarded as insane, mad, and beside themselves. That was the charge which was leveled against Martin Luther in certain cases, leveled against John Calvin. It was a charge leveled against many of the reformers, that they were mad and drunk with the Bible amongst all things. Which brings us to that word in this third verse, the faith delivered to the saints. All right, now I've noted that this word uh, faith, is it objective or subjective? And the difference that that makes in understanding what he's saying here reflects upon what he means by delivered. So let's begin with what does he mean by faith here? Is it faith objective, faith subjective? What do I mean by faith objective? Let's begin with faith subjective. If faith is a subjective matter to you, what does that mean? You control it. You control it. Let me improve on that. For each person. Do you have it? Do you have it, Bob? If it's subjective, do you have it? I don't know. If it's given to you, do you have it? Yes. You do have it. So you as a subject are subject to it. That is, you possess it. As a gift. Correct. All right. So that's the point. The subjective element of faith, which is also in this epistle, and if you turn to the end of the epistle, you will notice in verse 20, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now, that's faith in its subjective element, namely the faith that you have received as a gift, now building yourself up in it by the Holy Spirit. All right, well, the, the subjective element is my possessing of faith as a gift, then what's the objective element of faith? The it is the content. Very good, Ben. It is the content of the gospel. It is the content of the faith. It's what we would call the doctrine of the faith. Okay? That doesn't, that, that doesn't change from one person to another. It doesn't change because God is behind it. It is an objective content. 
The content of the gospel is salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the Lord. That's an objective content, is it? Does it ever change? Does it ever become different? Is it different for you than it is for me? No, it's not. It's the same. So this is what he's talking about here. He's not talking about you possessing faith. He's talking about the objective content of the teaching of the gospel. That's what he's wanting you to contend for. All right? Now, delivered once and for all to the saints. So we're back to this word delivered. How is this objective content delivered? By preaching. Ben? By revelation. Very good. It comes by divine revelation. It comes by God communicating it. It does not come by what? Ben? By the church. Through what? Through those who are ministers. Through those who are ministers, okay. All right, I'm, I'm trying to get you to a more classic distinction. What am I pushing towards, Scott, here? Uh, well, I assume divine revelation versus... Uh, I was thinking of sacraments, but that can't be it. No. It's got to be something... Uh, Art? Human reasoning. Human reasoning? Mm, you're on the right track. Tradition. Tradition. Yeah. What do you mean by tradition, Ben? That it's the church is accepted as biblical or, or as divine. Who does that? No, we get the church. What do they call that? Um, the living voice of Christ through their traditions. So that they actually have two sources of revelation, do they not? They have divine revelation in the Bible because they do believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. But they also have divine revelation through the traditions of the church, which have been named infallible doctrine. Not every tradition of the church, but the ones that have been labeled infallible doctrine. Those are also given by divine inspiration. <clears throat> Understand that the Roman Catholic Church believes that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. They also believe that the Holy Spirit inspires the Pope when he speaks from the chair. He's speaking infallibly. He's speaking the same way Paul's writing. Is that what Jude is talking about here? Yes. Is he talking about those traditions which the, that the Pope is delivering? I hope not. I hope not, or else I'm going to have to move, remove my credentials from a Re Reformation Protestant church. <clears throat> That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. It's only this which is revealed. It's only this which is inspired. It was only this which comes from Almighty God. What comes out of my mouth comes out of my mouth. It doesn't come from Almighty God. At least not by infallible revelation. What comes out of the what comes out of the mouth of of, uh, of Benedict or or Sylvester is not infallible revelation. In spite of what they say. In fact, they made mistakes when they made supposedly infallible revelation. Paul doesn't make mistakes. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. All right, so this point here is that there is no appeal in this verse to the oral traditions of the Roman Catholic Church being delivered by divine revelation. And the reason I'm exp expanding on this is because this is one of the proof texts for their claim 
that they have these traditions delivered to the saints. All right. The verification of the objective content of faith comes from the deliverance of divine revelation, revelation from God, not speeches from a chair in Vatican City. That is bedrock Protestantism. That is bedrock Reformation Christianity. True or false? I hope you think it's true. All right, you can take a break and chew on it with whatever else you get. As you're coming back to your seats, I've been reminded that I kind of skipped around on this second page. Uh, I, I did that inadvertently. You, uh, you get carried away sometimes, so I, I got away from my outline. So let's go back and pick up some of the pieces that may have been lost. <clears throat> uh, first of all, that purpose statement. What's the purpose for which he wrote this letter? It's to contend for the faith. That's the purpose. If, if, <clears throat> in your old writing classes in high school or college, if you remember those, you had to have a thesis statement or a purpose statement to key your essay. So this is kind of his thesis statement. The purpose for which he wrote the letter is that they contend for the faith. Now, contend, which I have um, two lines below on the outline, contend here is actually a cognate or a relative of the a relative word of the Greek word agonize. All right, now what does he mean by agonize? And in fact, he uses an epigenetical uh, term here uh, for this uh, agonizing, to agonize strongly, to agonize earnestly. All right, so what's, what's the agon motif in a Greek drama? Well, the agon motif or the agony motif is the struggle of the hero. And here, in this letter, it is the struggle of the church for the faith. So, to contend earnestly for the faith is to struggle strongly, earnestly, and intensely for the objective faith of the gospel. Let nothing compromise it. Let nothing sully it. Let nothing erode it or dissolve it. Now, how do you do that? How do you struggle earnestly, strongly? How do you do it without offense? How do you do it with a patient demeanor, with a loving demeanor? How do you do it? Well, first of all, we do it the way Jude begins his letter. Remember last week in our outline, we showed you how within the Greek of that first verse, there are two three-line segments. And what was interesting about those two three-line segments of Greek? Do you remember? 
The second line in both of the three line segments was what? Jesus Christ. To contend earnestly for the faith means to be focused upon the central person who is in that first verse twice in the center position. Centrality of Christ. That is an essential part of earnestly struggling for the faith once for all delivered. Now, the second thing to note is within this verse itself. What is at stake is the common salvation or the salvation common to all Christian believers. When that is up for grabs, we must struggle earnestly. When that is under attack, we must struggle intensely. When that is being compromised, we must agonize earnestly. This common salvation, which is something that he hasn't abandoned even as he writes this letter. He still believes in it. He's still going to appeal to it at certain points. But nonetheless, he's not going to abandon it as a central focus of contending or struggling for the objective truth of the gospel. Now, he's going to focus in that process on what has been revealed. We've noted that this is revelation. This objective content of faith is what has been revealed. Now, how is it that Jude is going to encourage his readers to focus on what has been revealed? He's going to cite the Old Testament in a number of cases here. He's going to use the Hebrew Bible in order to keep his audience focused on the former revelation of God. So in verses 5 through 7, and then again in verse 11, and then again in verse 14, he's going to draw upon the revelation, the objective revelation of the faith in the Old Testament. The point of his featuring the Old Testament is that he is reminding his audience that they must know the word of God in order to contend for the faith. They must be students of the word of God. They must be lovers of the Old Testament scriptures. They can't belong to one of these churches where all you hear is the New Testament preached. No, that's not preaching the whole counsel of God. That's not preaching the whole word of God. So if you're part of a congregation where you never hear the Old Testament or you only hear it incidentally, then you need to ask the question whether or not that pastor believes the Old Testament is a fully inspired word of God and is profitable for instruction, for proof, for improvement in righteousness. All right. You must continue to study, to learn, to understand the word of God. If you're sitting on your hands, if you're cruising, 
If you're not studying the scriptures, you're not reading the scriptures, you're not trying to understand the word of God more and more, the older you get as you mature, that the scriptures become mature in your own understanding and you grow and increase in knowledge. If you're not, if you're cruising on what you know, you're in spiritual danger. You're in spiritual lethargy. You're in spiritual laziness. You're in spiritual presumption. You do not dare presume upon the word of God in the presence of the almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You dare not do it. If there is a laziness abroad in Reformed churches with respect to studying the Bible, then it is a laziness which is going to cost. Sooner or later, it is going to cost. Because if your generation were not do it, can you imagine what the emerging generation is going to do? They're simply not going to do it at all. They're not even going to be concerned about it. And ultimately, they're not going to be concerned about the church at all. So you're slitting your own throat for future generations. All right. So part of earnestly contending is focusing upon knowing the word of God. Now, in verse four, he's going to add another element to this earnest struggle. And in that fourth verse, he's going to note that these intruders deny the grace of Christ. Is there anything more central to the objective faith of the Christian belief than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? By grace are you saved. It is central to Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. Christ is the very revelation of the grace of God. It is central to Paul's letter to the Romans. There isn't any book of the New Testament which does not feature the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What could be more central than earnestly contending for the grace of God? Particularly when you have a community, as in this case, which is troubled by those who deny it and reject it. Now, we'll notice in a moment what they were rejecting it for. But wherever grace is compromised, wherever grace is provisionally or finally shaded by whatever you want to put in that category, whether it's works, whether it's merit, whatever it is that shades that grace of God, then it is time to earnestly contend for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, one of the ways that you contend and struggle earnestly for the faith is what he mentions in verse 20. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is essential to the life and health of a believer. Your prayer life is the mark of the health of your spiritual life. Praying is absolutely essential to your struggle, not only for your struggle to maintain your faith, but for your struggle to maintain the faith of the gospel in the church at large. If you do not pray 
for the purity of the gospel and the preservation of the truth of the gospel. Who's going to? If you are not devoted to prayer, who's going to be devoted to it when Christ commands you to pray? As do all the apostles. Prayer then is absolutely essential for earnestly struggling for the faith of the Christian religion. And finally, a merciful disposition. We've already gone over those verses 22 and 23. We've noted that in contending, we extend mercy to those with whom we contend. We do so trying to rescue them from the burning, to redeem them from the tarnished garment. We are not severing ourselves from them unless they sever themselves from us or take a stance which is so obviously heretical that we must break fellowship. But we will treat them earnestly and sincerely with mercy as long as they will receive our merciful entreaties, our pleas for them to return to the faith once for all delivered, our pleas to them to underscore and teach the doctrine of the faith once for all delivered. We will beg them for mercy's sake not to abandon not to corrupt, not to tarnish, not to compromise, not to mix into the faith once for all delivered anything else which will cause it to besmirch the glory and grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord by the inner operation of the Holy Spirit. All right, that brings us to verse 4. And the so-called post-positive four, F-O-R. I say post-positive because it has that position in the Greek text. Post-positive meaning it's a second word in the Greek text, but it takes first place in translation. Even in the Greek, it would be the first word that would be uttered in terms of understanding, even though it has a second position in the verb. What's going on here with this word for? This is actually a signal of transition. It is a transition preposition, which indicates that we have moved from the beginning or opening of this letter, namely the introduction, salutation, and background, verses 1, 2, and 3. We have moved from that part of this letter to the reason for the letter. Why should you contend for the faith once for all delivered? For or because, and here's his statement of transition. All right, so we've shifted in verse 4. Now, we showed that, once again, in the structural outline that we had in handout number 3. When we moved from verse 3 to 4, we shifted from the believing community to the antithetical community. The antithetical community are these certain persons who have crept in. 
They are within the community, but they are the very antithesis of the believing community to which Jude is writing. And so his reason, you contend for the faith because these intruders have crept in to destroy that faith. In fact, they deny the grace of God, reject the grace of God, turn the grace of God into its very opposite. Now, in this fourth verse, in the Greek, there is another triad. Remember, we said that one of the distinguishing elements of Jude's rhetorical or literary style is his use of these triplets. And here you see triplets that use the alpha privative. Now, the alpha privative is the first letter of each of those three words across that first line. I have bolded it and underlined it so you can see the alpha. The alpha would be transliterated in English as the letter A. So do we have the alpha privative in English? Atheist. Amoral. Atypical. Asymmetrical. Okay, what do we mean by that alpha privative when we say atypical? Negates it, meaning not typical. What do we mean by amoral? Not moral. Not moral. What do we mean by asymmetrical? Not symmetrical. Not balanced in symmetry. What do we mean by an atheist? Not a theist. Not a theist? He believes in... Nothing. No God. He says there is no God. All right, so the alpha privative is a negating factor. It's a negative factor. It's a no factor, okay? So amoral, no morals. Atypical, not typical. Atheist, no God. All right, well, what about the Greek words here? All right, asebes is ungodly or not godly. Aselgeion is not self-controlled, particularly not sexually self-controlled. And our numenoi is not affirming, meaning denying. All right, now those negative <coughs> alpha privative Greek words are <coughs> balanced by their opposite. For asabes, there's Eusebia, which means godly in Greek. For Aselgeion, there is Enkrateia, which means self-control in Greek. Now, our numenoi, which comes from the Greek word arnaomai, that's a little challenging because I've not found a satisfactory antonym, though I'm sure there is one. It's just my ignorance of the uh, multiplicity of Greek vocabulary that I can't come up with. And the easiest one I can come up with is homologeo. <clears throat> homologeo means to confess or to affirm. So I put a question mark beside it because I'm not sure it's the direct antonym of our numenoi. <clears throat> However, <clears throat> as we look at the alpha privatives, as we look at the negatives, please keep in mind that there's an antithetical mirror here. 
These people are ungodly, meaning they are not Eusebia. They are not godly. These people are sexually unrestrained, which means they are not sexually self-controlled. These people are denying Christ, which means they are not confessing Christ. I want you to keep that balance in mind. Because the negative implies the opposite positive. If we deny the positive with the negative, then the positive is absent as well. So it's a double whammy. There is sin twice over here. It's not only that they are ungodly, they are not godly. Which is Jude's characterization of this group at the outset. Notice he uses the very strong alpha privatives at the beginning of his description of what kind of people have intruded into the community. This is their moral character. That is, this is their behavior. This is the state of their heart. This is their personality. This is how they act and believe. They act and believe with ungodliness. They do not believe in God, really. They act and believe with sexual uh, license. They are sexually uncontrolled. They are not sexually chaste, nor are they sexually restrained. They deny Christ. They act with denial, negation, and refusal. They reject, deny, and negate. They do not confess, embrace, and own. We are not dealing here, then, with a group of intruders who are mm, just an irritation like a gnat on a summer evening. This is a cancer. This is a moral cancer. And Jude uses these very strong triplicates at the beginning of verse 4 in order to show what kind of moral persons we are dealing with inside this Christian community. Now, in addition to their moral characterization, he also describes their lifestyle. Now, not in this fourth verse, but he does so in a couple of other verses. Verse 16. As you notice, verse 16, and you pick out the word there that suggests the kind of lifestyle these persons demonstrate. They are flatterers. They are flatterers. What's a flatterer? A flatterer is somebody that says something about you that is really not true. They're simply saying it in order to puff you up or to puff themselves up in your view. They are pretentious. What do I mean by pretentious? They are pretentious because they are show friends. They are faux friends. They are facade friends. They would just as soon stab you in the back as they would flatter you. 
That is what has crept into this Christian community. Into this Christian community have crept a group of flatterers who are skilled in talking up others for the sake of their own advancement, for the sake of gaining influence over them, for the sake of gaining power within the community. They are politicians, masterful politicians, flattering politicians. But in addition, in verse 12, there's something else. In verse 12, they're called the hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. What kind of lifestyle does this indicate? These are the huggers. These are the people that are willing to embrace you at the love feast with Hugs and warm embraces, but who would just as soon stare you down and stab you in the back. They appear to be warm and friendly, and yet they are internally hostile and aloof. The only reason they will embrace you is to, as he says, care for themselves. It is a self-affirmation. Now, I am not discouraging genuine Christian affection which shows itself by warm hugs. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there are huggers who have an ulterior motive. And sooner or later, you will find out why. Because in this community, this is the way they subverted the love feasts. They subverted the love feast by being the great loving huggers. And that was the style of their life. False hugs and false flattery. Nothing genuine about their lifestyle. It was all a facade. Now, how did they get into this community? Well, in verse 4, he says that they have come in unnoticed. In other words, they appeared to be credible. They came into the community with what appeared to be legitimate credentials. What on earth could have been the impression of the believers in this community thinking that those persons who were intruding themselves insidiously had the proper credentials. It's in verse 8. What word in that verse would give you the clue that these intruders claimed a proper credential? A proper ID passport of admission. Dreamers. Dreamers. Why, Ben? Yes, that they were dreamers receiving revelations from God. That is, that they claimed to be receiving God-inspired communications in their dreams. And Jude has to put the community on guard 
that when they claim to be receiving revelations by dreaming, they actually defile the flesh. That is, they're sexually unrestrained. And they revile angelic majesties. What's the word revile there in the Greek? Blaspheme. They blaspheme angels. Hmm, this is serious business. These people come in claiming to have divine revelations when in fact they use those divine revelations for sexual license. They claim to have divine revelations when in fact they use those divine revelations to blaspheme angels. Robert. Angels are not deity. No, they're not. So how do you blaspheme a non-deity? Verse 9. All right, we'll take that up in detail when we come to it later on. But he gives you a concrete example of what it is. Now, one step further. With respect to the credential of these dreamers, they obviously had some authority for teaching or instructing in the community. What authority would they have claimed? We've already noted that they claim the authority of special revelation. Revelations from God coming through their dreams. You've all heard Christians talk this way. If you've been a part of the Pentecostal movement or the the modern neo-Pentecostal movement, if you've been on the fringe of that, if you've investigated it, you will know that that is a routine claim. They claim revelations directly from God. So you've run into it. Now, on the one hand, we can treat it with some naivete. We kind of, you know, chuckle about it. We acknowledge that there are Christian brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal and Neo-Pentecostal movement. And we take with a grain of salt their claim to have special divine revelations. However, there are some more radical uh, individuals in that movement who are very extreme about that and insist that if you don't have what they have, then you are not a Christian. All right. Well... I'm not suggesting that that's the extreme here in this community, but the fact that they claimed special revelation means they were claiming the ongoing charismatic gifts of the apostolic age. I'm not suggesting that by the time the epistle of Jude was written, the apostolic charismatic gifts had ceased. They would cease. By the time 90 AD rolls around, they have ceased. Miracles and the charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, giving prophecy, miraculous healings, that's all ceased. Those things aren't happening anymore. I'm sorry. There are no more miracles. There are wonderful blessings through medicine, through doctors and nurses, through applications of skin grafts and all other kinds of things, but there are no miracles anymore. To call a doctor's skin graft a miracle is virtual blasphemy. Because a miracle is Jesus waking up a man four days dead. A miracle is Jesus walking on water, and he hasn't got any sky hooks holding him up. Treating a person who is sick in a hospital is not miraculous. It is using all of the providential means that God has put at our disposal in order to bring healing. And we pray for that healing through secondary means, through providential means. We don't ask God to not do anything to that person lying on that hospital bed and make them better immediately. We don't pray that way, do we? And we don't expect him to do that, do we? Or is Obamacare going to release us from all of that? All right, you understand. I'm making a theological point here. I'm making a point based upon what the Bible says a miracle is. A miracle in the Bible is a supernatural act. 
No natural means. No medicine, no operations, no sutures, no scalpels, no physical therapy. A miracle doesn't have any of that. And so if there is a lot of that, it's not a miracle. Please do not bastardize the word of God by using miracle untheologically. All right, now, these dreamers were on that edge of that charismatic movement in the apostolic church, insofar as they claimed by their dreams special divine secret revelations. All right, what about their standing? In verse 4, we are... We are uh, very clear, it's very clear from verse 4, that they were welcomed into the community. Well, if they claimed to have special revelations, it would have been likely that they could have been welcomed into the community. After all, Jude is claiming special revelations. In verse 12, you will notice that they are members of the community because they're coming to the love feast. Not only welcomed into the community, they are received as members in the community. And in verses 19, 22, and 23, particularly noticing verse 19, they cause divisions. Well, if they cause divisions, obviously they've got followers. They're leading, and others in this group are following. So they've got a group of followers within this community. But their doctrine is libertine. It is antinomian. It is antichrist. And it is elitist. All right, now what I mean by libertine? He actually describes that here in this fourth verse. He says they've turned the grace of our Lord, grace of God, into licentiousness. Now licentiousness is a dissolute and unrestrained morality. Unrestrained because, for the most part, it's sexually abandoned. It has no restraints in terms of perverse or heterosexual or homosexual sexuality. These people are libertines because they've turned restraint of sexual chastity into dissolute unrestraint. They're antinomian. Why? Because they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. In other words... They say, we are the ones who have the grace of God, and therefore we have license to do all this sexual immorality. They are anti-Christ. Now, here I'm using anti-Christ in the sense that they are against Christ. Why? Notice, they deny our Master and Lord Jesus. They are anti-Christ in that sense. And finally, in verse 8, they are elitist. That eighth verse indicates that their dreaming elevates them above the lower rabble or above the common believer. They have special revelations. They are spiritually above the others. This is the insidious the unwittingly insidious mistake of Pentecostalism and Neo-Pentecostalism, that they believe that they are elite because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you are not, 
if you do not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is a form of Christian elitism. Now, I'm not comparing it directly to what's here because there's not necessarily sexual or moral dissoluteness in that uh, neo-Pentecostal or Pentecostal emphasis. But nonetheless, the fact that they can say that there are first and second level Christians, two stages in Christianity. First of all, you get rightly related to Christ. Second of all, you get rightly related to the Holy Spirit. But if you're rightly related to Christ, then you're not rightly related to the Holy Spirit. So you've got to have a second blessing. That's nonsense. You can't be right related, rightly related to Christ without being rightly related to the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who rightly relates you to Christ. Oh, but you don't speak in tongues and you don't have power to mark, mark mirror. No, I don't because that's all gone and I'm not sure. I, sorry, I don't. I'm not whining because I don't have miraculous powers and you don't really either. You really don't. If you had miraculous powers, the first place you would go would be to the funeral room, wouldn't it? The first place you would go is go to do, do what Jesus did before Lazarus' tomb, wouldn't it? If you had a beloved Christian that had died and was laid out on the bier, you'd go and raise him from the dead, wouldn't you? That's what Jesus did to his dear friend Lazarus. If you really had the miraculous power that Jesus of Nazareth had, you'd prove it. You'd raise the dead. No. Not even Oral Roberts is claiming that. That's the reason he built a hospital in Tulsa. What? What is this? A miracle worker building a hospital. <laughs> what? Do these people think clearly? Are there any consistent brains in their heads? <laughs> you know, I apologize, but nonetheless, I just, I, I, it, it, it's, it's beyond balmy. All right. <clears throat> now, I, I put grace with a question mark out after it on the outline. Because grace here is being used as an excuse an excuse for licentiousness, for a moral lifestyle which is immoral. How so? Because they declare themselves free of all restraint. They will not be constrained by any moral code, including the code of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They will not be held back from their own self-indulgence, from their lusts. We are dealing with a very serious moral turpitude in this community. Jude realizes this community is being attacked from within. There is a real crisis here. And when you have sexual sin involved in a Christian community, you have a real crisis. If you do not deal with it faithfully, tenderly, lovingly, compassionately, but firmly, it's going to become a cancer. It has to be rooted out, but by calling for repentance and reformation. Always calling to reclaim the sinner, even the most sexually abandoned sinner. Jesus called them, and Mary Magdalene came as an instance of one who was saved from a life of dissolute prostitution. All right, now the last item here on the outline is the reverse narrative biography. I'm focusing here on the last words of that fourth verse. Namely, that these intruders deny the Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Jude had denied his Lord and Master 
Jesus Christ, his brother. Jude had lived that life. He had lived that lifestyle. He had lived that moral character. He had lived what he now sees coming in to destroy this community. He had been there, been there, done that by the grace of God. I'm not there anymore. And because I know what they're up to, because I've been through it myself, because I know what they're up to, I'm writing to you with urgency that you beware and contend earnestly for the faith which set me free, for the grace of God that released me from my amoral or immoral and dissolute life. Now, I'm not charging Jude of his pre-Christian life with licentiousness or anything like that. I'm simply saying that for him, rejecting the mastery and lordship of the Lord Jesus would be equivalent, equivalent to being an antinomian. Even though as an Orthodox Jew, he would have been very careful about the law. But without Christ, the law is a hollow shell. Without Christ, the law is only digging your grave deeper. If you think you're going to save yourself by the law, I have news for you. The Apostle Paul tells you in Galatians, you are not going to be justified by the law or by the works of the law. Because the works of the law only condemn you. You know that. Jude knew that. He came to realize it so that he would submit to his brother as his master and his Lord. So, this reflection at the end of verse 4 is an alert to all those who believe and behave as he once did, that I'm on to you. I'm on to you. I know what you're up to. And I'm tattletelling on you. I'm writing to this community. I'm going to tell them what you're really like. So that they will call you to repentance. They will extend mercy to you. They will show the love of Christ to you. And please keep in mind that all my intensity here is not a repudiation of my love in Christ, even for the unbeliever. I hope that the love of Christ shines through. If I'm too intense, then forget the intensity and listen to my last statement. The love of Christ is out there. I want every sinner to come through the love of Christ to the grace of salvation. So does Jude. And if his language is strong, it's because his love is strong. So the person with intense passion for the love of Christ can also have an intense passion for turning away for the degradation of sin. Because the degradation of sin is a pit that leads to the bottom of hell. And I can have no greater love for you than to beg you, even to scream at you, flee the wrath to come! With all the intensity and compassion that I can muster. Any questions or comments? We're ready for verse 5. 
Same time, same station next week. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we realize that the church from the beginning was a target. And there were those who would undermine it even from within because of their hidden agendas. If we, O Lord, are concerned about those who would undermine the church in our own day through their hidden agendas, we stand in good company. We stand in the company of Jude and that community of believers to which he wrote in the first century. Lord, there is nothing new under the sun in this regard. We are called, as Jude called them 2,000 years ago, to contend earnestly with the agony of struggle for the faith that you have delivered to us through the inspired Old and New Testament scriptures. How we bless you for that word, Lord. How we thank you that we have a sure word of prophecy, a rock of testimony that is as unmovable and unchangeable as you yourself are. An absolute standard by which to measure doctrine, life, faith, morals, character, behavior, discipline. Lord, we thank you for the word, for the word through Jude, your inspired servant. And we ask you, O Lord, to bind us in mercy, peace, and love to this word, so that we, in contending earnestly for the faith, may keep our eyes fixed steadfastly upon Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, and of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And we plead with you to hear us and work within us. In Jesus' name, amen.